All right, everyone, welcome back. This is our interview episode for the tutor overview episode that you all just listened to. We're so excited today to be joined by Rebecca. Rebecca, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of what what your interests are and, and what it is that you do? Sure. Um, well, I'm Rebecca Larson. I am the host and founder of the Tutors Dynasty podcast, which has been around since 2017. Before that, I started a blog called TutorsDynasty.com. And, you know, I love the tutors. I got into the tutors probably about 15 years ago, um, started reading the books by Jean Platy, and that kind of was the launching pad into my interest. And then, of course, the Tudor series came out and everybody wanted to watch that so that they could see this in real life. And that really is what got me interested in the time period even more. Once I got to see these people I'd been reading about in character form, it made it so much more interesting. And from there, I just kept reading and reading and reading until I felt like, wow, I feel like I understand this time period pretty well. And when I reached that point is kind of when I got to the podcast and thought, okay, I'm comfortable enough now where I can do research and write a script for a podcast um, and it'll make sense to everybody. Right. That is a great TV series. I have to say, I just have to throw that in there. That was almost a, a, a gateway drug for me history-wise that really got me into history. And then I never left. I kind of moved to a slightly different period, but that is an amazing TV series. If anyone's listening who hasn't watched it, highly, highly recommend. Um, it's good. All right. So kind of we started our last episode talking about this theory that's floating around that potentially Elizabeth I was a little boy or then a man in disguise. And there's not, as far as we could tell, there's a lot of kind of water to this theory. There, it doesn't hold a lot of, not a lot of evidence or anything like that. But do you want to walk us through the the general parameters of the theory and then why it it definitely isn't true i'm going to be as general as possible <laughs> so uh, evidently um elizabeth when she was young um was living away from courts and she got sick and died and her caretakers were worried that when the king arrived they would be in trouble because they were responsible for the care of lady elizabeth right and so because she died they needed to replace her with somebody and so they found a boy in a local village to um, pretend to be her and that evidently is queen elizabeth the first that we know that ruled for so many years of course of course no other possibility <laughs> <laughs> it's such a ridiculous story and it's so interesting to me that it's bram stoker who wrote dracula that's he's the one who kind of popular popularized it at least um more than it had been in this book that he wrote on on famous imposters i couldn't when i read that i honestly couldn't believe it that it had been him who had been and he had fully believed it it was crazy to me that this was something that he yeah was so i mean he was passionate enough about to write a book right yeah well the interesting <clears throat> excuse me hold on the interesting thing about this whole story is of course it's you know the in that scandals and myths arena mm -hmm. and okay. when we look at examining scandals and myths some of the first things that we do is like who said it so who wrote it why would they say it what was the point behind the story right yeah and okay. then um who where's the first evidence of it in this story this is the first evidence that we have of this story of her being a man and i just i find it so interesting 
um, that Bram Stoker came up with this. And when I dug into it a little bit deeper, I started seeing some, some connections to a story I had been told. So I know I told you I was going to be able to debunk this in two minutes. So <laughs> the way this goes is my mentor um, lives in England mm -hmm. and her grandfather was friends with Bram Stoker. No oh, way. Wow. Right? Isn't this this crazy? So he met Bram Stoker, and apparently this was at the time when he was writing Famous Imposters. And the story goes that he was looking for a way to make money. So he wrote this story about Elizabeth. There is no truth to it whatsoever. Wow. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of the conspiracy theories we talk about, I think if you dig deep, a lot of them would probably have that same sort of uh, mm. motivation. Because people love these myths and these you know stories that we've all been hoodwinked or something like that they just continue to sell mm. yeah and it did to me seem like quite a random sort of thing like what does stoker get out of this but if the answer is just pure and simple money then um i think we can kind of tick that one off yeah right and the thing i noticed too after i had heard this story was that when you look at the table of contents from the book you look through it this story is the very last one. It's yeah. kind of set apart. And isn't it interesting that I think it's right above that is the, is it the section that women that were men? Yes. Yeah. He wasn't yep. in that one, right? She had her own separate one. So almost like it was an afterthought or as it was a way he had started finishing his book and thought, I need something better. I need, yeah, something. I need something to draw people in. Mm. And then you see the Beasley boy or Bisley boy, however you say it named there right on its own at the very bottom <laughs> and it's funny because i i took the book out of out of the library and at first i actually because it's not quite listed in the table of contents i wasn't sure which story it was going to be because i expected it to be in that one section and it wasn't like you said it's it's kind of got its own little area so i actually was flipping her through the book for a while looking for it because i wasn't sure what heading he was going to have put it under so it's yeah it's almost mm -hmm. like he he wanted it in there but maybe he didn't quite Maybe he felt a little apprehensive that people might not take it seriously or something like that. He maybe had a few apprehensions. Maybe not, though. Right. Did you notice when when I was looking at the first few paragraphs or the first couple pages of the book, it's like he is trying to convince us using quotes. Oh, yeah. He just cherry picks like crazy. One of the ones that caught my eye that I wanted to talk about was how he brought up um, a letter that Princess Elizabeth... Was that the one that I'm thinking of here? Sir Robert Tyrwitt had said something about when he was questioning Elizabeth. And in it, the quote in the book that they used from the letter was, I do verily believe that there hath been some secret promise between my lady, Mistress Ashley, and the cofferer, Sir Thomas Perry, never to confess to death. And if it, to, and if it be so, it will never be gotten of her unless the King's majesty or else by her grace. So they're trying to tie in <laughs> yeah, that secret. I was. I remember reading that one too, thinking that could be any secret, <laughs> right? And and really, what it's in reference to is something completely different. It's all about the downfall of Thomas Seymour, and how oh. they believed that the three of them were conspiring to have the same story, and what they were going to tell oh, yeah. the authorities. This had nothing to do with her sex. Yeah, I found that. Yeah, like you said, the first few paragraphs are all these little quotes that are obviously from quite longer letters that are just so obviously cherry-picked and conveniently dropped in so you could draw your own conclusion that the conclusion being that of course naturally that she was a man but yeah I think if you even turn the slightest critical eye to it it just does not stand up to anything at all. 
Yeah, none, none whatsoever. Yeah. See, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, though, I did want to ask you a little bit more about the idea of gender during the Tudor period. And, you know, we briefly mentioned when we were chatting about it, when Claire and I were chatting about it, this idea that Elizabeth, I think, in she allegedly said that she has the head and stomach of a king. So in the period, why would that be something that she would be be saying in the first place? Well, really, her sister Mary was the first queen regnant. Right. And so that's the first time that England really saw a female ruler. And of course, um, the idea of a woman being a ruler at the time was absolutely ridiculous to most men because the woman's job was to produce children. It wasn't to think, it wasn't to um, try to be a male because women were a lesser version of men. That's how they saw them. Mm -hmm. um, she wouldn't have called herself king. Uh, you had mentioned in your previous episode the quote from her Tilbury speech. I may have the feeble body of a woman, but I have the heart and the stomach of a king and a king of England too. That's just her showing her power. You know, mm -hmm. she's like, I'm as good as any man. Um, but she definitely, she never called herself king. Right. And so how significant is this kind of whole idea still in Tudor scholarship today? Is it sort of just broadly dismissed or is it is it kind of floating around? It's a joke. It really yeah. is. Okay. Yeah, I, that's good. I, and I would, and I would think most people who are maybe not brand new to the tutors, but have been studying the tutors for a couple of years can see, at least I hope they can see that it's a joke, that there's there's just no credible evidence to prove that anything like that is true. It just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, and that, that was, this is one of the few theories that we've looked at on, on the show, at least, where this sort of theory comes out so much later than the actual time period. You know, a lot of them within two or three years of the event happening, people are starting to speculate. But this is one that it, I mean, it took ages for someone to, for Bram Stoker, I guess, to come up with this. So that to me is even, makes it even more ridiculous that mm -hmm. no one thought this before. He just claimed that he met someone who found this stone coffin or something like that. Like, it's craziness. It's so far-fetched. Really, if you want some real scholarship on Elizabeth I, you want to look at books by Susan Doran, John Guy, um, even Dr. Estelle Peronk, who's I would say is relatively newer to the historian scene within the last few years. That's the route you should be going. Don't be reading Bram Stoker. If yeah. you want <laughs> Maybe read it for some light entertainment. Yeah. If, you, if you feel like having a laugh, then, mm. then you can read it. Indeed. But we want to kind of get into the the main meat, I guess, of what we wanted to talk to you about, um, which of course is Thomas Seymour, which you're kind of the expert on, right? That's your that's your area. That's my passion. Yeah, I've been studying Thomas Seymour since um, 2016. Wow. So for the last six years, I've been just trying to gather as much evidence as I can and look through all the sources and really see what his life was about but mostly I really was examining the last two years at January 1547 after Henry VIII died up until Thomas's execution on the 20th of March, 1549. That was really my focus. Um, and then of course, adding in his backstory was important as well, but yeah, trying to figure out what happened at the end has been my focus. Yeah, cause you know, there's this, the story that we talked about, but you know, it just, it did seem to me like this is a very convenient and seems very one-sided, you know, painting this one character, not character, but person as this 
kind of power-hungry maniac and everyone else is looking out for the very best interests, of course. Um, and that always kind of rings to me like there's definitely, there's obviously going to be more than that. Human nature is not that there's one bad guy and everyone else is a perfect angel or anything and things like that. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what you have found over the last six years that you've been looking at those last two years of his life. Oh boy. Anywhere specifically you want me to start? <laughs> I'd love to, I mean, I would love to start with just your personal opinion on, you know, was Thomas, was he kind of power hungry in the way that we would describe someone who's quote unquote power hungry, like trying to, to get um, kind of, the, the ultimate power over mm -hmm. the over the young king and and was this relationship with his brother really so awful as it seems to be portrayed yeah i yeah i think it's interesting that he's always referred to as ambitious or power hungry when really all of the men at tudor yeah. court yeah. ambitious <laughs> but from an early age you know thomas was was the son of John Seymour of Wolf Hall his wife was Marjorie Wentworth who was a descendant of Edward III uh, Thomas was the fourth son. He was the third surviving, but he was the fourth son. So there really wasn't a whole lot expected of him as the fourth right. son. His father, however, um, it looks like raised him for court life. So he wanted his children to have a presence at court. And I think Thomas knew that in order to be able to move up and to gain wealth and status that he had to do the work on his own, because unlike his brother, Edward, it wouldn't just be given to him. Right. And so throughout his career, you see him climbing the ladder. His trajectory is just getting higher and higher. And of course, when his sister marries the king, it just only continues to grow. And it doesn't slow down after she dies either. When Henry this Henry the Eighth dies, I think there were expectations of what was going to happen. And Thomas thought he was going to be named governor of the king's body. It really seems evident that he really believed that this was going to happen because in the past, that's what had always happened when there were two or more uncles of the king surviving. When he didn't get those things, then he started to figure out other ways to gain power. And of course, we know he married Catherine Parr. That helped mm -hmm. um, him to gain some, yeah, some power and wealth. But I don't think he did anything that anybody else wouldn't have done. I think he was behaving just as his brother would have if he had been in his situation. I just feel like Thomas's story is misunderstood and that we're not seeing the full picture all of the time. We only see bits and pieces of what was happening. And then we try to, you know, make our decision on who he was from those little bits when really, can we do that to anybody? If I've only talked to you three or four times, is it fair for me to say, well, you're this kind of person? And that's really what I want to do with Thomas is just bring him forward, give all the evidence and say, this is who he really was. Now you decide. Right. Yeah. And and like you said, I think we with Thomas and with other, you know, Tudor people and also just people throughout history, it's we do make judgments on them very quickly based on. Mm. I mean, a lot of the time, propaganda that their enemies have made, but also just, yeah, just a small amount of the picture. So I'm really looking forward to when I'm able to, to read your, your upcoming book, whenever, whenever that may be. Um, that's good. That's going to be, I love the tutors. It's kind of my, like I said, my uh, gateway drug into, into history, as I like to call it. Uh, but without that aside, 
So do you believe this quote-unquote official story of what occurred, like, with the dog? Like, why would he, why would he be breaking into the apartments and, and was he actually doing that? Right. I've always thought this story was weird. Even the first time that I heard it, I thought something just doesn't sound right about it. How have we not heard more about the shooting of the king's dog if this was the king's beloved dog? Yeah, and it was his favorite according to the story, which is... Right, and he didn't write anything in his diary about the dog dying, and you know maybe he wouldn't have because his diary is kind of cold. Um, But the story is just, it's so interesting because you know they say he went to Hampton Court Palace on the 16th of January, 1549, and he dispersed the guards for the night and then went up to the king's room and the dog was outside of the bedchamber, which apparently was unusual. It startled Thomas, he shot the dog and got scared and laughed. And the story, it's just so weak. There's so much weakness about it, but people want to believe that he was this bad guy. So the first thing I wanted to do when I was looking at this story was kind of determine where was Thomas at the time? Is it possible that he was there? Um, what evidence to what evidence do we have to prove that he was there? And I really just I could not find any. Oh, you had mentioned in the previous um, episode about Vanderdelft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who who is he? <laughs> he was the imperial ambassador at the time, and from what I understand, he did not speak English, or if he did, he did not speak English well. And his only source of information was William Paget, who was like the right-hand man to Thomas's brother, Edward Seymour, the Lord oh, Protector. Oh, how convenient. Right. And so we can see William Paget filling Vanderdelf with all of these stories because he wants this to get back to his master. He wants the story back in Europe to make it sound like Thomas Seymour is this terrible guy because he's causing problems at courts. And they don't like that he's making maybe the King's reign and Edward Seymour maybe look bad. And so they want to tarnish his name any way that they can. And so they spread these rumors. And then of course it just grows from there and other people talk about it. And you see, um, I want to say there was a couple of Protestants that were writing back and forth about it as well. And sometimes you might think that that means that it's real, but I think all that you're seeing there is gossip because when I seen the rumor mill at work. Yes. Yeah. Because when I looked at the, where he was at the time, I just don't think it's possible for him to have gone back and forth from Hampton Court Palace. The next day, he was in Parliament. The very next day. So the following morning at 9 a.m., Thomas Seymour is at Parliament. So if he was at Hampton Court Palace the night before, trying to kidnap or kill the king, whatever they think that he was going to try to do, there's no way that he could have gotten back in time to go to Parliament. But not only that, there's just... It's not possible. (laughs) The whole thing just isn't, it's not plausible for him to have gone and shot the the dog, left, went to parliament the next morning, and then Mm -hmm. only got arrested later. Yeah. And I was, and part of me was thinking too, it seems strange to me that he was trying to be so, so sneaky about it all. Like, and then he shot the dog and left. Like I, Mm. I, it kind of sounded to me like he had a relatively close relationship with his nephew and that he... I feel like kidnapping him would be more dif- almost more difficult than, you know, just skate- convincing him to do something through other means than than kidnapping him and att- and then shooting his dog and running away. It all, yeah, like you said, it all seems it seems strange. Mm, it's weak, well, isn't it? And 
And they thought too that maybe he was going to um, go there to kill the king. He wanted to kill the king oh, and wow. then kill Lady Mary, marry um, Elizabeth, and then he could become king as well. And I'm like, that's ridiculous too. Why would he kill his own nephew? The, the person who brought him power. Yeah, it seems like that's the vehicle for him to continue to be, and he's giving him these allowances. Is that, right. you know, I'm gonna give you all these allowances and we're gonna get close, but then I'm gonna kill you and marry your half sister. <laughs> It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Not at mm-hmm. all. So what do you make of the theory that um, he wanted to take him and, and make him marry Lady Jane Grey? What were your thoughts on that one? Well, we know he wanted that um, yeah. because we see that in the letters between um, him and Dorset, Lady Jane Grey's father. All we right. see this in the correspondences that they were working this out. Or maybe I'm confusing that it could be that Dorset mentioned that in his testimony against Thomas that Thomas had promised him hey if if I can buy the wardship of your daughter then I'm going to work out that she can become queen by marrying my nephew now he should have never promised that so he was definitely wrong there but I think he just wanted power he was feeling like things were being taken away from him and I'm going to use this as an example and I'm sorry if I jump forward but he was made Lord High Admiral, and I feel like it was to appease him that he was made Lord High Admiral, because that position, while it's powerful, is also one that's known to take you away from court a lot. Oh. So it's almost a way where they were like, here, Thomas, here's this fantastic title where you're going to be in charge of the Navy, but we're going to send you away as, as often as we can. Yes, that sounds, and- like you said, very... Uh- very convenient for them that oh he's appeased but then he's also not going to be here anymore (laughs) right yeah so that definitely that definitely upset him and so any way that he could grasp a little bit more power was important to him because he just felt like he didn't know it i think he felt cornered really i think that's what it came down to and i think catherine parr when he married her she also felt cornered a little bit because she did expect to become regent and maybe it was foolish for her to feel that way but she had expected it. So here you have these two people who are so close to the young king who feel burned. And now they're working together to try to get what they feel is theirs. And you just see this Tudor power couple working together where she is this queen dowager and he's the uncle of the king. And I just, I love them as a couple so much. They kind of married, am I correct in thinking that it was like semi-secret their marriage? Like, or is that just part of the whole kind of effort to discredit um, Thomas that he, you know, married Catherine too quickly or something like that. They did marry in secret. Okay. They definitely did. Um, the time frame I think is still up for question. Most of the time we'll see people say it was in May um, when they were secretly married. I think they were secretly married much sooner and that the word started spreading and then eventually Edward Seymour found out and they had a real wedding. But we don't have any evidence of either of those. All that we know um, is that they were married by, I'm gonna say by May is when we first see it in a letter where it's signed your loving husband or your loving wife. Okay, so they, and that was, I think someone once told me, I have no idea if this is correct, but that was because they were worried that if she fell pregnant, they wouldn't know whose child it was, if it was the child of Henry VIII or her new husband. Is that, does that sound correct? Or is that just something I've read somewhere? Well, that was one of the reasons why they were so upset with Thomas and Catherine marrying in secret, because there was that risk. Even though we all know there's no way she and Henry were together, 
at the end there, there was always that risk in their mind that she could be carrying the king's heir. Um, and you wouldn't want any confusion when it comes to that. Uh, I don't think there was any risk at that. I don't think Thomas and Catherine believe there was any risk for that to happen either. And I really feel like it did not take very long after Henry VIII died that they came back together again. I feel like they were just these two magnets that they felt before they wanted to get married in 1543, before Henry came around and wooed her away. And that whole time, you know, she's married to Henry, she's Queen of England, but Thomas is out, you know, being a diplomat and fighting wars. And it always makes me wonder if they were always secretly pining yeah, for each pining, other. Pining yeah, pining for each other. Oh, I love that idea. finally died. Yeah. <laughs> so how did they meet each other sort of in the first place, just through court life? I think they met just because their families were in the same circles, because yeah. there's evidence yeah. of her brother William um, being around Edward Seymour, Thomas's older brother, from an early age. So I feel like they were just connected all of the time. And then you also see with Sir John Seymour, their father, there's connections with the Parr family there. So I think it's just the families that were connected at the time. They just... Yeah, they would have all kind of been aware of aware of each other and, and moving yeah. in the same circles, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know how well they knew each other before, but they had probably at least met a couple of times, I would think. So it's, it's interesting you saying sort of like Thomas and Catherine being this like perfect couple, um, because we, we sort of discussed on the last episode about Thomas being very interested actually in Elizabeth or seemingly so. Um, do you think there is any sort of evidence of that or was that again just another kind of um, a thing to, to dishonor his name slightly? Mm, I like this question. I don't <laughs> like the bedroom bedchamber talk part of the question, but what I want to go to is the Thomas wanted to marry her mm-hmm. part of it. Because we always hear that after Henry VIII died, Thomas wrote Elizabeth a letter proposing to her. Yeah. And then there's this famous rejection letter that we've all seen. They're both fake. So Gregorio Letty wrote this book and in the book, they, it, it's been proven by some people that letters in the book are fakes. And the big thing yeah. with Letty is, is Letty went to England to write this history that he wanted to write, but he upset the king at the time and got kicked out of the country. So he kind of had an axe to grind with England as yeah. well. And he, he comes up with these letters and writes them for his book, and they're completely absurd absurd there was no way thomas would have proposed to elizabeth right after henry the eighth died and if he did there's no way he would have written it in a letter as evidence evidence. it's yeah that's the part that always gets me so that didn't happen but the one part that there's like a little grain of truth in it is that in her deposition cat ashley makes mention that before henry the eighth died that thomas would have made elizabeth his wife And I think that's where that came from, is that there was talk that before Henry died, Thomas wanted to marry Elizabeth. That's why Cat Ashley says. So then afterwards, Letty decides to turn this into, well, he proposed to her after Henry VIII died. That's my theory as far as that goes. But he, you know, when Henry VIII died, I think he had his eyes set on Catherine Parr. And I think it was a great choice for him. There was definitely some flirting, I would say, between him and Elizabeth. She showed her interest as well. Um, There was talk about her always blushing when he was brought up. Um, When Catherine Parr died, he didn't immediately turn to Elizabeth. I think he was in this state of grief for a couple weeks 
where he just couldn't even think straight, you know, and he was sending people home from Sudley Castle. And then when he finally came to his senses, he realized, okay, well, I've lost my wife, the queen. What can I do to regain my power? And so he looked back at Elizabeth at that point and thought, well, you know, maybe this this young girl who's been flirting back with me might be interested. And of course, she's heir to the throne. And so he never directly talked to her about it. But we see in Kat Ashley's testimonies that there was a lot of discussion between her and Thomas about a possible marriage. And Kat Ashley was really pushing for this marriage. She wanted it to happen even more than Elizabeth did. And Elizabeth would tell her, you know, I will only do what the council tells me to do, or I will only do what the will of God will have me do. Never once did she say, well, I would marry him because she knew the council had to approve any marriage. Thomas knew the council had to approve any marriage. And so he was kind of in a tough situation there too. I don't know what he expected to happen at the end, or maybe I do, and I'll reveal it in the book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> little teaser there like yeah. that. Um, I'm, a li- I'm curious to talk a little bit more about kind of Thomas and his older brother Edward's relationship but also you know was you know like we've been talking about the men and Tudor Court are very ambitious individuals you know it, it is there a lot of evidence that Edward really was trying to kind of get rid of him that could potentially you know, lead someone to come to the conclusion that maybe, you know, his brother set him up or is, you know, is, do you think there's anything, anything to that at all? Oh, that's a tough one because I, I think there's enough evidence to prove that Thomas was set up and not just by his brother, but other men at court as well. So his brother's allies, I think they all work together to find a way to set him up so that he would go to the Tower of London and be executed. I think they really wanted him out of the picture. Right. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's Claire and I were just, we're talking about this brief, briefly. It's, you know, a total aside, but it, it is kind of sad when you see this, this sibling relationship deteriorate so much between mm. Edward and Thomas. It always just it makes me a little sad to read when you, when you read those things, but obviously it, it happens to this day. It right. happens all the time. Yeah, it, it's interesting because it seems like they had a decent relationship up until Henry VIII's death. Mm. After Henry VIII died, I think that's when things started to fall apart between them, when the cracks began to form. And it only got worse because they just couldn't agree on anything. And one of the things, too, that I want to bring up is I think often people bring in Anne Stanhope as an instigator. I was curious about that, yeah. I really don't believe Anne Stanhope had any ill will towards Thomas. It was only Catherine Parr. And there was a statement made, I think it was by Nicholas Throckmorton toward the end of Thomas's life, where he said, um, now that the queen was dead, he thought that um, Anne Stanhope and Thomas would get along again, that they would be able to be friends again. Mm. And so that indicates more that the problem was between the women and not necessarily with Thomas and Anne, but the women were fighting. And of course they were fighting over many things that mm-hmm. we hear about. I haven't researched those two in particular and, and all of their interactions, but the stories are out there. Some of them have been debunked or we realized they were written centuries later to make up some female dramas. Um, <laughs> all that we know for sure is that Catherine's jewels were kept from her and that it appears Anne Stanhope thought 
she should have everything a queen should have had. Right, because she's married to, um, yeah, to Edward, right? And yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I was, I was curious about that when I was, you know, doing the research for the episode. That there were a lot of mentions that you know Anne was, you know, this very conniving and she hated Catherine and whatnot. But yeah, I was curious what element of that because, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people like drama in in uh, our historical narrative sometimes. So I was well, I was curious as to as to where that where that came from. But the jewels was the jewels was true, I guess. I could see. How yeah, I, definitely, definitely I, the jewels jewels part was true. I could see how that would make you upset with someone. Mm, definitely. Well, especially when some of them were gifts from her mother that she wasn't able to get back. Oh gosh. I mean, you can't blame Catherine Parr for being upset. And it's something Thomas even tried after her death to continue to retrieve these jewels for their daughter. Um, but they never got them. As far as I know, there is no evidence. And, you know, when, when you and I were chatting be- before the podcast, I, I'd said in, I'd come across in some old biography and and dictionary entry about him you know asking the navy for their for their support and i did think that was a little strange but i'm curious yeah to hear what you have have you ever come across that or do you think that makes any sort of sense that he would have done something like that i've never come across anything that said that I mean, as the Lord High Admiral, he did have control of the Navy. It just seems really reckless for him yeah, to... Yeah, it seems crazy that he would... Even when we were talking in the podcast, we thought, wow, that's very bold. Yeah. Right. And I think he was so careful at this time about how he said things, who he said them to, because he knew that he had to be careful. He knew if he said the wrong things, it could be considered treason. And in 1547, the treason laws changed a little bit too. So I think he understood that in order to be charged with treason, you had to have two witnesses to an event and it had to be within 30 days of the event happening. I think he had all of that in the back of his mind, knowing I have to be really careful about what I say especially during the time when he, you know, is considering marrying Elizabeth, he has to be very careful because any marriage of hers has to be approved by council. And if he would marry her without council approval, well, that would probably be treason. Right. So the whole piracy thing, him asking the Navy for help, that whole that whole topic is still kind of a question mark to me because I find bits and pieces of things that had happened and really the piracy laws or the orders from court on piracy had changed and they were loose. And so it shouldn't be happening, but they were also giving permission to some people to do it. So if he had actual sailors who were plundering ships Um, maybe he thought it was okay because he had been given the go-ahead before, so why wouldn't it be okay this time? But I don't find any evidence of him having these large stashes of of plunder anywhere. I mean, they they make it sound like he was stealing all this money and he was hoarding it because he was going to form this army and he was going to do all these things, but there's no evidence of it. Right. And that, again, feeds in very well to this whole he's an evil guy planning this massive overthrow um, right that really yeah that seems at least to corroborate that but there's no evidence of either of those things is what no. i'm getting more and more out of uh, out of <laughs> chatting with you that there's absolutely no evidence of that yeah the rumors have really gotten out of hand yeah that's 
Yeah, I mean, they've had hundreds of years to fly and expand, haven't they? So, um, Right, and yeah. you know how it is when you're told the same story over and over and over, you know, family lore, that type of thing. It just grows, and people assume it's the truth. Mm -hmm. They don't even consider that it's not. And so I'm hoping I can open eyes and get people to go back and look for themselves, too. They don't have to necessarily believe what I'm saying. This is my interpretation of the research that I've done. I would love other people to go back look at all the testimonies read everything and just look at it carefully and kind of put yourself into that time period and understand how things were and why people made these choices mm. yeah and that applies to i think to probably a lot of the things that we've spoken about on our podcast which is just go and look for yourself because a lot of the time it is relatively easy to kind of um find the truth and and debunk them so yeah you just have to want to yeah yeah there's you know, there's to a lot of the theories we talk about, sometimes they're, they can be almost fun or they're more exciting than, than the actual truth. So people, it's kind of hard to want, I think it's hard to give up these, these notions we have about, about certain people and, and certain time periods. But mm -hmm. I'm glad that you're trying, that Thomas hopefully will have a little bit of redemption. Um, he sounds like someone who certainly deserves it at least, or mm -hmm. at least, you know, for people to look at look at it themselves and and come to their own opinions like you said yeah i know it's an uphill battle that i'm that i'm fighting here i'm just hoping if i can make a little headway then i'll be happy <laughs> and i'm this is just a more a more general question about thomas and, and the seymour family actually as well after edward you know um the king t passes away what what becomes of the Seymour family, do they remain powerful or is that shifted away for them as, as Mary kind of steps in? Hmm, that's a great question. I guess I haven't gone too far past Thomas's execution yet. Um, it does seem like they're kind of a threat to the throne, especially during the time of James I. Um, the name continues on today. I, I believe the current Duke of Somerset is also a Seymour. Um, of course, they never really rose to the throne again, um, but they got close. Yeah, they, I was, in looking at this, obviously I was aware of who, who Jane Seymour was and whatnot, but I didn't realize that her family continued to have so much influence after her death and then even after Henry VIII's death that they, would you consider them the most powerful family at court at the time after Henry VIII's death? Is that a fair statement to make? Oh, that's definitely a fair statement. I think they were the most powerful, or they should have been the most powerful people. Maybe Thomas wasn't, but uh, his brother Edward definitely was. I mean, the Seymours, it was, a, it was a big family, really. There was, Edward was the oldest surviving, then there was a Henry, and then there was Thomas, and then there was Jane, and Elizabeth, and I think Dorothy. And so there was quite a few of them. They were all still alive at the time Edward VI became king, but we really only see a lot talked about Thomas and Edward. The others kind of were just doing their own thing in the background. Right. And I'm sure there's lots of people, I guess, that we that might have even been involved in, in some of these things that we're chatting about that we just were in the background and don't get, we get mentioned for whatever reason. But are important people to these to the stories and, and the history that we tell that do fade away for whatever reason. Yeah, and I started doing, um, for my podcast on Patreon, I've started doing a segment called The Other Seymours, 
just to kind of give a little insight into some of those other people that we don't hear about very often. Um, since we always hear about Thomas and Edward and Jane and, and the King, of course, mm -hmm. I think it's time that some of them start to shine and we get to see their stories as well. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, that's, yeah. you know, something that Claire and I both, part of the reason that we had, that we started the podcast was kind of for these redemption stories, but then also hopefully to, you know, illuminate some people, some figures and, and people who maybe don't get the attention that they, they should or that they, they deserve. Um, so that sounds, we highly encourage anyone listening to obviously go and check out Rebecca's podcast, but also her Patreon. That sounds really exciting to kind of get behind the family who sound like a far more intriguing family than I certainly thought with my, I mean, limited knowledge of them. I was just more familiar with Jane. They're definitely more interesting to me than the Bolins. I feel like their story is And the just... yeah, the Bolins loom large in like Tudor history and then also just, I think, popularity as well. Yeah, all because of Anne. Mm -hmm. Jane doesn't get that, does she? <laughs> no, no, she's, I mean, I. she's always seems to, to me, at least, to get portrayed as kind of like this very, just almost meek and mm. nice woman who... Just produced a child. Yeah, and then yeah. she's the perfect one who Henry loves. And end of story. But you know, of course, it's never that. It's never that simple. No, they want her to be boring. Really, after Anne Boleyn, I think that they everybody wants Jane to be seen as boring. I don't think she was boring, but that's another day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole, a whole other. Well, you know, we were saying that even though we're calling this the, it's this is our first of hopefully many episodes about the Tudors because there is so much I think to mm. talk about when it oh, comes yeah. to them and myths and theories that have cropped up about what everyone's up to and whatnot, especially, I mean, in popular culture is a huge, like we said, the Tudor series is amazing, but there's also, that's also another way, vehicle for misconceptions to, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, percolate in, in, in the, in uh, social media and just the, I don't know, the, I'm trying to think of the word now, I can't, what am I trying to say? So the popular narratives. Yeah, like the popular yeah. narratives and collective memory, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. So before we, you know, close it off, is there anything, any last thoughts about Thomas you want to, you want to leave us with to just kind of some thoughts to maybe go away with? Ooh. I think what I would like the listeners to take away from this conversation is that the history that you've been told your entire life may not be accurate and that it's important if there is a subject that you're interested in to go back and dig into the primary sources yourself however that is if you can go back dig through this stuff and start reading and figure out for yourself what you think happened because it's all about interpretation and if you don't read the documents with open eyes, you're missing some important things. And I think that's something that I'm hoping to show everybody eventually here. I think that's a, a wonderful message to, to walk away from the episode with that. Do your own research when you can and just, yeah, bring an open eye to the history you've been told, the things that you've heard from your family, your peers, things you read on the internet. Nothing is really ever as it seems there's always more nuance and it's always more complicated than that yeah well thank you so much for joining us um if you're listening and you want to know more about the tutors which i'm sure you do after this conversation we'll of course link all of rebecca's information about um, her and her 
podcast and all the amazing work that she's been doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I always love to talk about Thomas. So if you come and listen to the podcast, you'll probably hear me bring him up a couple times. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.